The New Testament lesson this morning comes from the 14th chapter of Isaiah, beginning with the 25th verse. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come to me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you that weren't here last week, the title of the message is Jesus, You Can't Be Serious. The first part was last week, the second part is this morning. Jesus was at the height of his popularity. For some time, he had been moving steadily toward Jerusalem. He had intimated to his disciples that he was going there to die. That seemed to be in in direct contrast to the reality of his popularity. We read in this passage that he was being followed. It, It wasn't just one crowd. He was being followed day after day, week after week by great crowds from all over Judea, Samaria, Galilee, from outside of Israel. Huge crowds were coming to hear him, to see what miraculous thing he would do or even say. How could he think in the midst of this popularity that he would be killed? The disciples were surely looking at this and saying, by the time we get to Jerusalem, the whole nation will be behind this man and he'll take the throne. But Jesus knew that day, and this is key to understand, he knew that day that a crowd similar to this, a huge crowd similar to the one with him that day, would stand in Pilate's courtyard and scream, crucify him, crucify him. It was in that context because Jesus understood that, that he turned to the crowd that day. And he, in so many words, asked, are you really hearing me? Are you really following me? Are you just here because it's the most popular place to be in Israel right now? He asked them that by asking four questions, four tough questions. And their answers to those four questions would determine whether they were really following him or just there to be there. 
So we asked last week and we ask again this morning. Are we here? Are we here in this worship, this place of worship this morning? Because it's, it's the place to be in, in our culture. Are we here for that single purpose of Jesus Christ, of following him? These four questions are so demanding. At first, as we first hear them, we want to turn and say, Jesus, you can't be serious. We looked at the first two questions last week. We'll look at the last two this morning. Let's very quickly, I'm not going to preach this week's sermon over again, but just to jog, to, to shift our minds into gear, to remind you, I want to look at, at very quickly the first two questions. Jesus' first question to the crowd that day is a question to us this morning. Do you love me more than you do your own family? I look out and I see parents, parents with little children, parents with junior high age. I don't think Jesus was really speaking to parents with junior high age children when he said, love me more than you do your children. It's easy to love Jesus more than you do junior high kids. But these are real questions. These people were just like us. And he just looked at him and I and said, look at it. If anyone comes and does not hate his father or mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Did you hear that? You can't be my disciple. You can't follow me. These are strange words. What do you say? Hate his father and mother? Jesus teaches us. God teaches us all through scripture. We're to love our parents. We're to love our children. How can Jesus say this? What did Jesus mean? Was he calling us to hate members of our own? No, it doesn't fit with the rest of scripture. He was saying, when you come to me, when you really follow me, I will take precedence over your parents, over your children, over your husband, over your wife. It, it makes sense if, if Jesus is God. It's the same thing that God said in the Old Testament, the first commandment. I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Our hearts are idol factories. We make gods of everything, parents, children, money, all kinds of things. And God said, Jesus was simply saying, I'll be first. Why did he use the word hate? The Hebrew language did not have a word, an idiom for love less. You love something less. Their idiom would have been, you love this and hate this. And they understood what that meant. But what you really want to notice, he used family. He used those relationships that are closest to us and said, love me first. Parents, look at your children this morning. Do you love Jesus first? A friend of mine was putting her seven-year-old to bed. She had prayer with him. He was a really smart young man. And he said, he hugged his mother and he said, Mom, I don't know whether I can love Jesus more than I love you. 
she did not gloss over. She said, she didn't say, that's so sweet for you to say that. She didn't say that. She sat back on the bed and she said, you must love him more than you do me. She said, I, and she called his name and said, I love you, but I love Jesus more. And she said, you know why? And he said, why? He said, because Jesus gave you to me. And you love him first because he gave me to you. That's what Jesus is saying here. So he says, love me more than you do your own family. Secondly, he said, or he was asking the question, do you love me more than you do your own family? Answer that question this morning. Basic. Second question, do you love me more than you do your own life? Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, he had something to it. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. And then he elaborates his own life. He says, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And that day, the people, it was a common sight in Israel. Thousands of Jews had been crucified by the Romans. It was a common sight to see a man carrying his own cross to a place of crucifixion. The man who was carrying his own cross was going to die. And Jesus said, you want to know what it is to follow me? You take up your cross and you go and die. You die to your will. You die to your way of living, to the world's way of living. You die to yourself. When he said that, people, do you understand when he said that? His disciples were standing right there. Ten of those men who were standing there that day would forfeit their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. They would come to a point when they said, I love him more than I do my own life. You may threaten me with death. Do your best, but I will love him first. Do you love me more than you do your family? Do you love me more than you do your own life? Third question, one for the morning. What has it cost you to follow me? That's the next question, Jesus. What does it cost you? What has it cost you to follow me? Look at verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him. This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be by an disciple. Jesus said, Following me is like anything else you do in your life. Before you go do it, you count the cost. So let me tell you, Jesus says, it's going to cost you everything. That's the words of Jesus. A man said to me one time, we were talking about Christ. And he, was, he was a friend. I played golf with him. He said, he said, John, I just, I just can't do this Christianity thing. And I said, what, what's standing in your way? And he said, I'm just not going to give up my golf game on Sunday morning. And I started laughing. He said, why are you laughing? I said, you don't even begin to understand. Jesus is asking for a whole lot more than your golf game on 
Sunday morning. I said, people die for him. And he really didn't get it. But we say, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was free. I thought salvation was free. I thought we're saved by grace, not by works. I thought we were saved by grace, not by what we give up. We are saved by grace. We cannot buy our salvation, even with our own martyrdom. If you die for Christ, that will not buy your salvation. He freely sacrificed his own life for our sins. We freely enter his kingdom, undeserving. And we, we, we come empty-handed, bringing nothing. We enter his kingdom saying, just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. We enter his kingdom saying, nothing, here, nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We enter the kingdom saying, Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left to be paid. Then what's this mean? When he said he will cost you everything. Following him in this fallen world, following him in this corrupt world, in this rebellious world, loving him in this world may cost you everything. My father, his name was Preston Sartell. He was born in Winchester, Virginia. He was born a citizen of the United States. His citizenship was free. He paid nothing to become a citizen. But because he was a citizen, because he loved freedom, because he loved the Constitution of the United States, because he loved his country, there came a time that he gave up his home, that he gave up his family, that he gave up his job, he gave up his house, he gave up his convenience. He was willing to go to a battlefield and give up his life. Not to become a citizen, but because he was a citizen. At that point, becoming a, or being a citizen was costly. 1943, 1944. Well, let me tell you, in the same way, being a citizen of his country, of his kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, is costly in this world. The entrance is free. But it's going to cost you because you, you give up everything. You say, Christ, my family belongs to you. That car belongs to you. That house belongs to you, Jesus. Everything. I give it all up. It's yours. I talked to, I talked to this young man several times about his relationship to Christ. He was a young career businessman. Been out of college for two or three years. And every time I got close, I remember one time we're sitting in a car right outside of Independent in Memphis. And we've been to lunch. And I was really pressing him with the gospel. And, and he said, John, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I said, why? Tell me why. His exact words were, it will cost me too much. 
I would have to change my life. There's some things I don't want to give up. I really respected that young man. I respected him a lot more than many people who call themselves Christians, who think it's not costly, who don't ever give up anything for Jesus. He was looking Jesus in the face and saying, no. Listen to me. If you don't hear anything else, listen to this. When you love your family, when you love, when you trade and you say, I'm going to love Christ first. I'm going to love Christ more than I do my wife. You'll actually love your wife more because you will love her rightly. If you say, I'm going to love Christ more than I do my husband, you will be saying, I'm going to love my husband. You will love your husband better because you love him rightly. When you love your children, in your love for your children, when you love Christ, when you look at Christ, I'm going to love Christ more than I do my children, you will love your children rightly, and you will love them more. That's the irony. It's the best love. It's the best love. Children, the best love you can have from your parents is when they love Christ first. Their, their love for you will be so much richer, so much better, so much fuller. Do you love me more than you do your family? Do you love me more than you do your own life? What has it cost you to follow me? And lastly, Jesus asked this question. Is your life... Is your life changing the world around you? Is your life changing the world around you? Look at verse 34. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. When Carthage was conquered by the Romans, hated Carthage. They hated Carthage. It was the home of Hannibal who had threatened Rome itself. They came to Carthage. They conquered. They burned the city. Burned it to rubble, but that was not enough. They then plowed the rubble un into the ground, and that was not enough. The Romans then salted the place, the, the, the ground where Carthage had stood. Piled it up with salt. When salt is pungent and real and authentic, nothing can grow where it is. But you know where the salt has lost its saltiness, where it's lost its flavor. You can put it on the soil, you can put it on grass, and it has no effect. Jesus also talked about the manure pile here. Sometimes you can add a little bit of, of, of salt 
to a compost pile, to a manure pile. And it acts as a catalyst to facilitate a chemical change that will turn the manure into fertilizer. Well, Jesus said when the salt has lost its savor, it won't have that effect on the manure pile. It won't change it. What, gee, what was Jesus saying? He was, what did he say in the, it, we, we heard from the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount this morning from the Dutch. What did he say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you're going to be salt in this world. He told his disciples, he tells us, you're going to be salt in this world. What, what did he mean? This world is rotting. And you will have the effect of stopping the rot. He said, you're going to be light out in the world. Why? Because it's dark. The world is dark and you're going to bring light to the world. So that's what Jesus was saying here. He was saying, is your life salt in this rotting world? Is, this life, is your life light in this dark world? You know what we want to say? We want to say to our children, we want to say to the people around us, has Jesus changed your life? It's, isn't it ironic that Jesus comes to us and he says, is your life changing the world around you? If there's not commitment, if you've not loved Christ more than family, if you've not loved Christ more than your own life, if following Christ has cost you nothing, then your life is not going to be salt. It won't be salty enough to, to change the world around you. I ask you a question. Is the world around you, your family, your friends at school, your friends at work, is the world around you different because you're a Christian? That's what Jesus was saying. Why were the colonies successful in their war against England? It, 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 they weren't impossible. If you had been there and you would look, you would say, there's no way the colonies can fight this war and win. They're outnumbered. They're outmanned. They're outgunned. There's no way these farmers could take on and defeat the most powerful army and navy in the entire world. But they did it. You know how they did it? Fifty-six men signed the Declaration of Independence. What they did, their convictions, cost them dearly. And when they signed their names, they were signing away their lives. Of the 56 men, five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in that war. Another two men had sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought in the war and lost their lives in the war. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ship sunk by the British Navy. They knew who he was. They sunk his ships. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts, and he died in poverty. In the Battle of Yorktown, General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home. Thomas Nelson was 
a great man who had signed the Declaration of Independence. Nelson went to George Washington and said, fire on that house. Bring it down. Cornwallis is there, even though it was his own house, even though it was Nelson's house. Nelson died bankrupt. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside. He had to run for his life while she was dying. Thirteen of his children fled for their lives. They destroyed his field. They destroyed his mill. For over a year, he lived in the forest and caves. He returned home exhausted. His wife had died. His children were gone. Why did they win that war? They were committed. That's what Jesus understood. They loved freedom. They loved this country. They loved the vision of this country. And they were willing to die for it. Jesus was saying, there's a greater kingdom. Do you love, do you love me more than you do your family? Do you love me more than you do your own life? One more story, and we're done. In 1832, Hudson Taylor was born in England. 21 years later, in 1853, imagine this, leaving England and sailing to China, to China in 1853. What would that be like? He was 21 years of age. He was committed to taking the gospel to China. 21 years old, he was a missionary. To prepare himself, he had not only studied theology, but he had studied medicine. They told him in China he could only preach in certain areas, but he ignored that. There were some areas off limits to foreigners. He preached wherever the Holy Spirit took him. He translated the New Testament into Ningpao dialect. His daughter died from disease. That did not stop him. His family was almost killed in the Yangchow Riot of 1868. That didn't stop him. Maria, his first wife, died in childbirth. That didn't stop him. His second wife died of cancer. That didn't stop him. He made it a policy never to ask any man in England or China for anything. He only asked God. He founded, he's known as the founder, Hudson Taylor's known as the founder of the great China Inland Mission. By 1895, he had brought 641 missionaries to China. They manned 260 missionary stations. What was his secret? He loved Christ first. That was it. He loved Christ first in all his life. He loved Christ more than he did his life. But that is not the end of the story. It gets better. After the communists took over, Mao's government came to power. They commissioned an author to write a biography 
on Hudson Taylor. Why would they want to write an, a biography of Hudson Taylor? They wanted to twist the truth. They wanted to turn Hudson Taylor into a wicked man, a bad man who had been bad for China. And so this scholar, this communist scholar, began his work, but he couldn't help it. He was mesmerized by the life of Hudson Taylor. The integrity. And he couldn't study Hudson Taylor without studying the gospel. And so eventually, at the risk of losing his own life, he laid down his pen, he renounced his atheism, and he received Christ. After Hudson Taylor was home in glory, his story was still changing the world in which he had lived. Isn't that awesome? I saw my father leave a heritage that's still being felt all over this world. You may, you may, you may say, I'm not Hudson Taylor. I understand that. <laughs> Neither am I. You know, it doesn't take much light. It doesn't take much of a candle when it's dark enough. And it's dark out there, people. That's what Jesus was saying. You're going to shine. You can't help it. If you love me first, you will shine. If you love me first, you'll be salt. Don't worry about it. You will be. You can't help it. And you'll leave a heritage that even after you're gone, through your children, through your grandchildren, through the people, your neighbors, the people that saw Christ in you and you didn't even know it, you will not know until you get home what Christ is doing through your life.